Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. Thanks for joining us again this week. We are halfway to halfway of the first half of the legislative session. Uh, it's really just been about a month, not even quite a month. And uh, according to my non-scientific poll of my colleagues today, everyone is already exhausted. It has been an eventful week, um, particularly for education policy, um, particularly for transgender rights policies. Um, and and we'll get into some of that today. Uh, Scott is not with us today. He is out of town for a family wedding. Um, so send condolences and congrats to him um, via the radio waves, if you would, listeners. But in his place, we have an excellent guest. Uh, we have Labor Commissioner Leslie Osborne and friend of the pod. Welcome back. You bet. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been a few years. We were just talking before we started recording that the last time you were on the show, we were recording in Scott's extra bedroom upstairs <laughs> on a uh, on a hot summer night. So this is a little bit nicer. It we're is. in our new studio. We're not all the way moved in, but it's starting to feel a little more professional than having to sit on his front porch. <laughs> it looks like a good space. Well, thank you. Uh, commissioner, you just won re-election as labor commissioner back in November. This is your second and final term, right? Correct. It's a term limited like all the statewide offices. Yep. Um, and I don't remember off the top of my head what the margin was, but I seem to recall it was fairly substantial. Well, I do know because of our closed primary system and me being a moderate Republican, I barely made it through the uh, runoff 6% over Sean the Patriot Roberts. Oh, that's right. <laughs> uh, but then ended up, Gettner Drummond and I ended up with the most votes in the general with like over 105,000 more than the governor. So it's just kind of a strange anomaly. And yeah. it shows that when you have that closed primary system, who shows up to vote, and it really does matter. And I guess my main contention with that is that I feel that so many Democrats and independents are disenfranchised because basically 80% of the votes are decided before you ever get to vote, and I feel like that's not fair representation. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, I, just this week we had an election right on, on Valentine's Day, and in Oklahoma County there was a, a, it was a primary race for county clerk and the, the Republican candidate, Marissa Treat, right, uh, pro tem, Greg Treat's wife, won, you know, with more than 50%, a, a normal majority like you'd expect. But on the Democratic side, um, Derek Scobie won that primary with only 36%. And because it's a special election for this seat, there's not a runoff. Right. And so he won the primary with, I mean, just over a third of votes. That's a wild way to run an election. It is. And when you look at the number of people that voted, you know, Oklahoma always has a very sad record of voter participation. And we have a plethora of people that are keyboard warriors talking about things every day. But they, unfortunately, if you don't show up to vote, you don't get to make those decisions. Right. Yeah, I think Oklahoma County or Oklahoma City only had like 16,000 people that voted a really right. small number. Right. Um, a very much of the minority is making decisions for the majority when we don't get voter involvement. Right. And those specials, like you said, specials and runoffs, it's really bad. Yeah. So anything we can do to uh, to change that structurally for the system, I think, would be better for the citizens. Yeah. Yeah. And um, there's a, a growing interest, I think, in open primaries, right? Or mm-hmm. And even making our statewide races um, something that... Um, would allow more voters to feel like their vote matters. I think right. a lot of folks feel disenfranchised because they don't, you know, if I, if I don't show up, what does it matter? Well, in many cases, that's true. But under a different system where every voter, regardless of political affiliation, gets to vote in every race, that makes a big difference. It really only is fair 
and the, and equitable and the right way to do it. But when we had the Democrat majority for literally decades in the early statehood of Oklahoma, they didn't want to change that because it was advantageous to them. Now with Republican supermajorities, they don't want to change that. So any of these kind of changes will have to take uh, place through the initiative petition process, yeah. which you're familiar with. And we've seen multiple things pass in a red state that people did not expect. Medical marijuana and Medicaid expansion both come to mind. They were both expensive campaigns. You have to do a lot of advertising and getting your, your message out. But I would expect to see something in the next couple of years on open primaries through that position, petition process in the state. Yeah, I hope so. And, you know, just in uh, a few weeks, mm-hmm. we get to use that system to vote on recreational marijuana and some criminal justice reforms that are packaged yes. with that. Um, and again, you know, the governor put that in an off year in a weird month. Turnout is going to matter a great it deal. Is. I have no idea how to even gauge. I've been trying to do some modeling to guess what turnout might be, and I know I'm gonna I'm gonna miss it by two hundred thousand people right. one way or the other. And you know, at this point, surprisingly, in red, red Oklahoma, I see that it's polling to pass. I hear, you know, pros and cons. I'm not taking a position on it, uh, but I would say that it's going to be interesting to see. And what it does with already a lot of burgeoning problems at OMMA with illegal grows and everything, how much does it change all of that? Do we really already have recreational marijuana because it's so easy in Oklahoma? There's no big stipulations. In some states, you have to have a cancer diagnosis. You have to have an epilepsy diagnosis. To get a medical marijuana card here, it's not like that. So is there a reason? And so anyway, it's just interesting to hear the arguments on both sides. Like you said, there's also some dollars in there that go to cities and counties. That So a lot of it's being touted as a way to get more money to your EMS or whatever. But at the end of the day, those dollars go to the decision makers. And I don't think there's a guarantee on how it would be split up either. Right. So right. it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, I a few months ago, I was at a conference um, where a lot there were several, about a dozen or so, maybe two dozen California state lawmakers or state assemblymen, and uh, and one of the panel breakout panels was about the California cannabis industry. So they had folks from grow uh, and retail operations. They had the the newly elected sheriff for Sacramento. They had you know union. Um, the UFCW, the United Farm Work, Farm and Commercial Workers Union was there, a number of other groups. And it was really interesting as an outsider to hear about another state's with recreational marijuana, their successes, their challenges, and to talk to them. And, and one of the lawmakers there was from Texas. Uh, and so a state that doesn't have, you know, some of that. And it was interesting to hear him talk about, he's like, man, well, I don't know if we want to expand ours because you guys have a lot of problems. And even the Californians were like, listen, California is California. We may not be applicable to what's happening in Texas or Oklahoma or elsewhere. Um, But I think by learning what's happening in other states, it gives us a chance to learn from their mistakes without having to make them ourselves. Why why reinvent the wheel? Right. That's a, you know, absolutely. So we should look at the states that have done it well, the states who haven't done it well and be gauging on that. Is that, well, we have enough of an informed electorate to do that. I wouldn't guarantee it. Sure. (laughs) Well, let's talk a little bit about being the labor commissioner. Um, You've been in the role for four years now. And maybe for listeners who are new and are unfamiliar and didn't hear you last time, could you tell us a little bit about what the labor commissioner's job does? For one, because when I asked you before, you hadn't yet been elected and you may have a different opinion of it. (laughs) 
So uh, we do a lot of things that people would not expect. And prior to coming into the legislature where I had run bills for the two prior commissioners, Mark Costello and Melissa Houston, so I really got to know what they did, which was what piqued my interest when the position opened because I'd started a new division there for the compressed natural gas industry. But a lot of what they do is regulatory. So we we inspect every elevator in the state every other year, an escalator, except for Oklahoma County. They have their own jurisdiction, but everywhere else in the state. We check every commercial-grade hot water heater and boiler for safety. Um, we do. We check every amusement park ride in the state, whether it's a Frontier City or a carnival chain that goes around 12 weekends in order to 12 county fairs. We're there when they put them together. Make sure they're done to industry specs. Make sure that the people operating them know how. And just a quick caveat, why do we do things like that? Well, 31 states that do that have a markedly lower rate of people being injured on an amusement park ride. And every time we get to summer, you hear two or three of these heinous accidents. And of course, it can happen anywhere. But we just feel like that's something that's worth doing. So a lot of our people that are regional that do these types of inspections, uh, we cross train. So they may be doing amusement parks in the summer, and then they're doing elevators and boilers in the winter. So it works really well. But some of the things that every Department of Labor does is we are all required across the nation to have at least one person on staff that uh, educates on child labor laws. Very important. It's not the same when you hire somebody under 18 as right. a 45-year-old. Uh, we uh, also make sure that wages are paid. So a lot of times if somebody hears about somebody that was um, not paid by an Oklahoma employer, we can litigate those cases for free. We have administrative law judges come in. You come in, fill out the paperwork. If you have any form of documentation, we can do that. You don't have to lawyer up and go to district court. We deserve, We believe that people deserve the wages they worked for. Uh, and then our workplace safety programs are some of our most important. Um, and like I always say, if you're a Boeing aerospace, you can afford a fleet of safety consultants. But if you're a manufacturing operation in Chickasha that started with five guys building truck beds and you're up to 20 and you're in a little steel building, you may not be thinking about everything you need to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have OSHA trained employees who will come out. If you sign up and want to do our program, it's free. It's confidential. We don't do any reporting to federal OSHA who are the finers and and those kind of things. But uh, we will embed an employee, train them, make sure your facility is doing everything right for caustic material ventilation to proper exit signs and lighting and all those kind of things. And it's a win-win. Same way. Everybody deserves to go home safely from the job they work every day. Well, that's a a great like non-combative way to do it, right? I mean, I think so often people are afraid to ask for help because they're afraid there's a punitive element to it. But to come in and say, listen, we're not here to bust you. We're here to help you. It's a big deal. It is. Because, you know, you hear the old, we're the government and we're here to help. (laughs) Nobody (laughs) believes that, right? right? So, But the Federal Department of Labor is the one that can do spot checks anywhere in the United States at any time, any business to check for safety. Well, that is a good thing. But they can be punitive. So that's why years ago, the State Department of Labor here started this kind of uh, proactive program to protect people from ever having that problem and also helping their employees. And then the one thing we've really focused on in my four years that were kind of new is we've really had a push for occupational licensure. Yeah. There's been a national push to lighten or get rid of occupational licenses. And we have been not in favor of that because... Um, there's a reason that everybody from a medical doctor to a plumber to a cosmetologist has the training they do. And, you know, a lot of times when say like cosmetology, you'll hear people say, oh, well, yeah, anyone can cut hair. And I'm like, well, you know, my hair looks blonde. 
but it's really gray. Right. And every six weeks, I go to somebody that puts caustic materials on my scalp. Now, if they did it wrong, I could be bald for life. I could have <laughs> damaging. I kind of don't mind paying a little more for someone who's done the training to make sure they know what they're doing. Right. And the same thing would go with being your anesthesiologist to being the electrician that wires your house. And there's a reason we have occupational licenses as long as they're not onerous or too expensive or protecting an industry. It's really about public safety and integrity of the trade. So when I came in, we'd started a commission that reviewed, and we had 508 jobs in the state that required a license. We have got that down to 206. We have eliminated over half and made them things like quasi or certification. So for instance, a cosmetologist, what if you only wanted to braid hair? Right. Okay, go for a weekend course to be a hair braider, get a certification, but you don't have to do 700 hours on the other things. And we got lots of the boards to work with us on those kind of things so that we really were licensing what needed to be licensed. And we're going to continue that work. Uh, we also did things like making sure you couldn't hold felony, prior felony convictions yep. against people that wanted a license. And at that time, there's 42 agencies that do some kind of licensing. Almost every one of them have what I would call a blanket morality clause. We got that removed in the last few years from all of them so that if somebody with a prior felony wants to get into the field, and remember that one in nine adults in Oklahoma has a felony conviction. Wow. 25% of our state from birth to death has a felony or a misdemeanor. If we are not utilizing people with a what some people would call a checkered background, mm -hmm. uh, then we are never going to fill the workforce needs. And we're also never going to change that trajectory for the right. person who wants a second chance to change and turn their lives around. It makes a lot of sense if you've if, if you got busted for writing hot checks or embezzlement, maybe you shouldn't be a banker. Right. <laughs> you don't need to work at a closing company, but you know what? If you want to be an electrician or a cosmetologist, go for it, buddy. Right. I could care less if my cosmetologist had a DUI twelve years ago. Right. But we so what it we stipulated was unless it was violent, heinous, or sexual, or in the field that you license. Mm -hmm. So for instance, we license locksmith at the Department of Labor. If you had repetitive breaking and enterings, you know there's a lot of professions, maybe that's not the one for you. Right, right. But if you had a check hiding card charge 12 years ago, I think you can still do this. Right. So I think that's really seen some changes. We did a lot of compacts on things like um, traveling nurses and things about you know interstate reciprocities, which has been very helpful. And for military spouses that move here, a quick expediting of getting a, um, a license. Say if you were a counselor in Pennsylvania and moved here, we don't want you to wait three months. We're going to make sure in a week or two you can already practice. And that's, So a lot of good work on that. And you mentioned counselors. That's something, you know, me, I'm a yes. licensed professional counselor. This licensing falls uh, in, in my life. And I know there's been an effort by the State Board of Behavioral Health to increase our state's reciprocity with right. other states. It was notoriously difficult mm -hmm. to get licensed in Oklahoma and get licensed elsewhere. I had a supervisee um, several years ago who was on, on the road to get his LPC, and he wanted to get licensed in Oklahoma because he lived here, also in Missouri where his daughter lived and in North Carolina where his mother lived because he knew he might need to move to one of those. Right. But he to his credit, did the math, right? Did the, read all the policies and figured out that he couldn't do it straight from Oklahoma to either one of those states. So he had a, he had a, this like algorithm, right? Like a spreadsheet where he could do hours in Oklahoma, concurrently count them in like West Virginia or somewhere. And then that state had reciprocity. So he had to pay two or three times the licensure fees to get licensed in multiple states 
just so he could go work in North Carolina near his aged mother. Um, and I was like, and he was in his sixties at the time. And I was like, well, kudos to you because most people I know most would not people, do that. Right. And all we want to do is be able to, to do the job we love, Absolutely. help people and not have to like deal with mountains of red tape in order to do it. And most of what we did with reciprocity was at least making sure that the requirements were extremely similar in the other state. Yeah. So for instance, Texas, a couple of years ago, experimented with removing the license for plumbing. Well, immediately we started hearing that people were going to get their license in Texas where it didn't really have any requirements uh, and then say, oh, reciprocity, take me in <laughs> Arkansas. No, 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 no. We need to at least make sure. But they have, it's a quick check now. Right. They have databases and they can quickly check. And if it's something anywhere close, we want to make sure that it is quick reciprocity. And we're seeing more things, like I said, traveling nurses. Before COVID, we had not heard about that that much. Now it's very common. Yeah. And a lot of times people that say work in the Durand area, they will want to have a license for Texas and Oklahoma. And so anything we can do on that, have we've really worked on. The other initiative we've really pushed is workforce, which is a huge problem in the state. And we hear everybody talking about it all the time. And uh, so we have... Uh, really been pushing what are the four or five most critical job shortages? What can we do to get into high schools and counselors? We talk about the pipeline all the time. And it's not that people are taking a government check and not working. We are at record low unemployment rates. People have either opted out of working, they left early PTSD from COVID to whatever else it is, or we're not utilizing the ones that are here. And I can think of three buckets of people that we're not utilizing that would fix our workforce needs almost overnight. We have huge amounts of uh, daycare deserts across the state. Yep. And so we basically disenfranchised half of the women in childbearing years out of the workforce. Yep. We have to do something to subsidize the start of new quality daycare centers or tax credits for parents that can't afford quality daycare, which also is such a fundamental step for school. So working mothers is in particular. Now, interesting caveat, if we lived in somewhere like Seattle or Boston, that is more shared. Hmm. And we note that not as many women have the problem. It's men and women because there's more shared responsibility. Sure. Now, you with your lovely young tot are probably not that way, but we are a patriarchal Bible Belt state. Sure. And traditionally here, that falls 90% of the time on the mother. Yeah. And it's just an interesting thing that we see a correlation or a difference in blue states and red states. Second thing is we're not using the immigrants that are here because everybody gets scared of the words open border or whatever. What about the people that are already here? Right. Why aren't we doing everything to help them, first of all? Uh, but remember, I don't I don't worship uh, white Republican Jesus. <laughs> I kind of like the one that was in the Bible that had brown hair. He was brown, and he had long hair and a flowing dress and sandals, who actually thought that we should help those in need or immigrants or people that fled a country because of civil war with a child on their back. See, I don't think all those people are rapists and uh, murderers like our <laughs> former president said. And I actually think we might should be giving a helping hand. Yeah. And so when we have so many people of that description in our state, why in the world aren't we doing things to help them get their legal status uh, done? There's a bill by Senator Michael Brooks that would help them with driver's licenses, but it requires that you pay state taxes. Great. Sure. 
It's a win-win because we're helping them on the path, but they're also getting into jobs where we can actually train them and help them and help ourselves with the shortages. And the third is the justice involved. When I tell you those stats, like I did earlier, of how many people have a criminal justice background in our state, people that we look around and see every day and have no idea, we have to be utilizing these people and giving second chances. And that's so those three pots of people, if we could define the way to do that and then start in seventh, sixth, seventh, eighth grade with true career pathways with what the shortages are in your state and the quickest and easiest and cheapest path to get to that occupation, we wouldn't even have a workforce problem. We would have fixed it overnight. That's so fascinating. And I think, I'm sure I'm not alone in this and uh, among our listeners that immediately as you're talking, I'm thinking of people. I know my own experiences Mm -hmm. With some of these things about Im- immigrants in particular, you know, in college, like many Oklahoma boys, I did roofing, right? My mm-hmm. cousin owns a roofing company. And that was probably my first exposure to the impact of public policy on private business was that, you know, most of our roofing crews were subcontractors. Many of them are Latino. And, um, you know, obviously we our contractors were um, U.S. citizens and I don't know about their crews, but, you know, we all are somewhat familiar with the construction industry. But I remember in college hearing, like suddenly one day, we couldn't get crews to work. We had thousands of roofs Wait, lined let me up. I think was this t- Randy Terrell years? I think it might have been. I want to say it was House Bill like eighteen twenty, Eight, uh-huh. something like or that. Eighteen oh four, I think. Maybe that's it. It was before me too in the legislature, okay. but I remember. And it was just I remember coming in like a Wednesday, and suddenly we couldn't get, and mm-hmm. all the crew chiefs were like, "Listen, everyone's scared. Like, we can't tell you where they're at. Maybe some have left, some are still here. Like, we want to work, but." There was such a fear across the state that people didn't show up to work. They didn't earn a paycheck. They didn't pay taxes. It meant that businesses halted. It was a huge hurdle for us that took weeks and months to like kind of recover from once people realized this was unconstitutional. This was right. not going to happen. But I remember, you know, I was like 20 years old being like, I don't understand all of this, but this seems like not good for the state. Right. right? And then, uh, and then secondly, I, you know, I know someone who, uh, when they were younger, had a, a felony charge. I don't know if it was, I think they got a deferred sentence, but they they stole name brand jeans. And that's important because they stole five pairs and those jeans were about $100 a pair, which was over the $500 threshold to become a felony at the time, right? right? I think it's raised since then because of this. Had they been Levi's, it wouldn't have been a felony, right? right? But they were like guests or right. I don't know what jean, I don't. Whatever bougie brand they right, had back right. then. Sparkle butt jeans, right? <laughs> and uh and so they had a, a felony on their record. And so when you have to answer the question, right. have you ever been charged? Ban, ban the box kind of questions yeah. we hear, yes. Um, and that then, pers- they, then they immediately, they don't even get an interview. No. And there are several bills this year. You know, uh, Senator Jack Stewart, a new senator from Canadian County, mm-hmm. uh, filed one that would actually add to the list of protections in law uh ban the box on private sector, not being able to hold that against. Now, when you get further along and you're a job that would traditionally do background checks, you absolutely can do that. So it's not hiding it, but it's at least not having it where people aren't even getting in the door for an interview. Right. And when you look at the numbers in a very high poverty, low education state, this is always going to be a factor here. Yeah. And and then look at all the prisons where we started these wonderful programs, Mabel Bassett and places for plumbing programs and coding programs. If they get out and we've given them all this training and we still can't, what are we doing? So it's kind of that coordination of if we're doing all these things, we need to make sure we're making more every step of the pathway 
you know, makes it a, yeah. a, path, a pathway. And I personally believe that a rising ship, you know, what is it? A rising tide raises all ships. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, I, I don't see how that should ever be an open borders argument. We're talking about the people that live here, have families here, have kids in our public schools here. Why in the world aren't we allowing them to progress, helping them, but also helping fill our workforce shortages? Right. Yeah. If people want to work, we should get out of their way. Absolutely. Let them work. Yeah. Um, so this, this has all been great. What's been, what's been the most unexpected thing you've experienced in the last four years, um, in coming into the role of labor commissioner? Well, I, as we talked about before, I served 10 years in the legislature before I was here and it, it always amazes me and it's gotten worse in the 14 years I've been in public service of how much time we spend on issues that really aren't government's job. <laughs> and it's it's one of my pet peeves. And I just, I talk about it all the time. America was founded on the separation of church and state. Right. And I am a Republican. And Republicans are supposed to be the party of small government, not getting involved in the minutia of freedoms, right? And what are we doing at the Capitol? We're spending 50% of our time or more on social issues, moral issues, and trying to save your soul. And I know that I beat that drum all the time and people may get tired of hearing it, but I'm going to keep doing it until people remember why we're there. Right. And so I always say this one sentence, but it's my firm belief that the that the role of state government is to provide a fabric that allows society to function and its citizens to flourish. End, stop, hard stop, period. That doesn't mean that we control a doctor's choices for their patients. That doesn't mean that we decide what religion you should be. That doesn't decide what color you should be. And we are so focused on these things. These trans bills, I mean, it's taking, and last year, trans and abortion bills took up over 50% of the time. And there was something that was really chilling to me was when I saw on TV a debate with Dr. Oz when he was running for his U.S. Senate seat. Sure. And they said, what do you think about a woman's right to choose? And he said, oh, got the perfect answer for this. He's a physician. Every time a woman wants to make a decision about her health care, and you probably know what I'm going to say, this needs to be between her, her medical doctor, and her local politician. Yeah. And I just it, sat there and said, It felt like an Onion article. What yeah. the hell did he just say? <laughs> yeah. How does that make sense in anything in 2023? And I, whether you are pro-life or pro-choice, at the end of the day, this is individual decisions. And there's things we can do around the edges, but I'll never understand how we have become such a moralistic, um, save your soul uh, kind of focus that we're seeing, and not just here across the country, because as soon as we see something passed in Florida or Texas, it's like Oklahoma, hold my beer, baby. We'll follow that one next week. And it's just, why aren't we working on the real problems? Workforce, not enough uh, mental health care beds, not enough certified teachers in the classroom, not enough support for, you know, so many things. And we're not even talking about those. So they get pushed to the side and we feel so much better because we frighten the public so that they'll always vote for us because we're saving them from all these boogeymen. Mm-hmm. And we're not addressing the real issues of what keeps a citizen here, what makes a business stay here, what makes a business want to move here. It's not what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it is bizarre uh, as an experience to follow the legislature and to see the amount of time and space they spend dealing with non-issues, right? right? And they, and the way that things get twisted um, to make them feel like we're under assault. I mean, after, so, well, on the first day of session, right? State of the state, um, 
uh, there was a lot of LGBTQ folks who mm-hmm. rallied at the Capitol and, you know, went inside, which you're totally able to do. It's they the waited in line. House. It is people's house. Uh, our intern, Micah, and I and my dad were at the Capitol. We, wa- we saw them all in line going through security, emptying their pockets like you do. Very peaceful. It was all fine. And then later that night, I saw on social media, apparently right-wing Twitter Mm -hmm. had been sharing videos of saying, like, you know, trans people are storming the Oklahoma Capitol. And it was – it would have been comical (laughs) if it wasn't so outrageous and, like, hurtful um, because that kind of level of spin is not just, like, presenting something in a different light. It was totally falsely representing what was happening, Um, a peaceful protest, which is the – I mean, a core piece of American democracy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the Boston Tea Party was not violent. Ooh, they threw tea in the water. <laughs> it's not like anyone got hurt, right? Right. Ooh, some folks came into the Capitol and, and said— And I think we have an amendment about that. We sure do, yeah. And, and to the governor's credit, who is one that believes in multiple social issue bills, he even came out and said they had a permit. Right. And the next day was Abolitionist Day. Exactly. And the next day was Rose Day for pro-life. And there's a day like that every day. Uh, but that's what the times we're living in now. And I believe a lot of that is because of the 24-hour news cycles, far right and far left, yeah. that basically are getting their audiences to tune in every day with fear. Sure. Every Democrat wants to take your gun. Every Democrat wants to abort their own baby at nine months. Not true. Right. Every Republican wants to arm your child with an Uzi when he hits air the minute he leaves the uterus. Not true. And that until we get away from these bombastic kind of things and people believing they're watching the news, because they're not. They're watching entertainment. Oh, that's a good distinction. And I grew up much older than you where my parents listened to Walter Cronkite, and they actually reported the news. And we all thought that's what it was going to be with Ted Turner and CNN when it first started. And I think it was at first. But slowly we evolved into panels and then screaming panels and then talking points and it's not working for us. And so that's what I, every speech I give across the state, I talk about the Labor Department workforce, and I am with a call for civility and to turn off the national news, turn off bombastic talk radio, right. and find good critical thinking sources to read what you want to read or hear what you want to hear. But we aren't teaching that. Yeah. We are not. Te- we have a generation that doesn't know how to vet their sources, that believes whatever they hear. And I really do fear for our country and state uh, how we ever get past that. Yeah. Just yesterday, I sat here on the couch in our office with um, Keaton Ross from Oklahoma Watch and talked about um, some of the bills that would affect democracy, right? Some of the um, Senate Bill 518 is probably most notable that would fundamentally change the way the initial petition process functions. And he, in the conversation, told me some of the other folks he'd interviewed um, to kind of help provide some context. And, you know, his story is he did not have a five o'clock deadline. He's not trying to crank out stuff. He perhaps has the luxury, the privilege of doing a good job of vetting sources, of thinking critically. And, you know, we had a good conversation of him asking questions, me answering, going back and forth to provide their readers, right? It's a nonprofit, right. local journalism outfit, to provide the readers with like comprehensive, well articulated, well thought out journalism, which is, yeah. Uh, in short supply these days. Yes, it's out there. You just gotta. It is. You gotta and, know where to but look. you have to look a little harder. 
you have to think a little more. Yeah. And uh, I always, when I'm out in rural areas, talk about the frontier, Oklahoma Watch, and Nondoc, because I think a lot of people yeah. that are not in these metro areas yeah. that hear more, they need to hear about that. We've got good reporting. I love how Oklahoma Watch is partnering with, like, uh, some of the news stations and, and the Oklahoman and stuff, and they're doing the cross-working yeah. together. It's beautiful, and it's good journalism, and that's what we need. We need people that are informed on the real issues and not the ones that are not issues. As you said, we spend half of our time uh, with huge, breathtaking solutions to something that really wasn't a problem. Sure, yeah. Yeah, fear and outrage. There's, mm-hmm. there's a lot more to our life than those right. two feelings. So what comes... Next, what do you, what is your next term? Your last term as labor commissioner? What do you have planned? I do not have a plan for that yet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will I will be termed and uh, and we'll just see. I don't know. Would there be something else I'd be interested in, or would I rather do something like say a women's coalition or the nonprofits or something? I think I would still want to be in this world and yeah. uh, try to make the world a little better place. Sure. And uh, I still. I have a lot of friends that call me Pollyanna, and a lot of people on here may be too young to know who it is, but I'd still like to believe there's good people that uh, really do just want a better place for our kids and grandkids to thrive and be successful. And that's in short supply right now. So I'm not quite ready to give that up. So I plan to enjoy working the next four years on these initiatives, and then we'll see. Yeah, I would imagine you have some things you didn't get accomplished in the first four years as labor commissioner that you would right. like to have a chance to finish up. What, what are those? Well, really doing a lot with workforce. And I don't know if you've heard about, but we have a fantastic project with uh, Sean McDaniel of Oklahoma City Schools. So okay. huge shortage in the trades in Oklahoma and really across the country. So we did a deep dive during the COVID years. Of, we get a lot of number crunching back from the Bureau of Labor Statistics on, you know, these things. The average age of a plumber in Oklahoma, 58. Wow. If the average age of your occupation is over 42, you have a looming problem. And the higher it is, obviously, even more, you're not filling the slots as fast as you need to. So it's like, why? How did we get here? What is this? Well, when we dug back, there's a direct correlation during the H.W. Bush presidency. There was a push for every kid in America to go to college. Well, as we did that, it sounded beautiful and philanthropic, but there's many jobs across this nation that don't necessarily require a college degree, but are fundamental to making our economy run. Mm -hmm. And they also can be very lucrative and not have college debt. So what we discovered was that over the next decade, all the state legislatures started requiring four years of science, four years of math, four years of English, because kids needed to be college ready. This was the big national Mm -hmm. push. We didn't have time for shop class anymore. No. There is a direct correlation, like a beautiful chart, that as shop class went away across the United States, interest in the trades did. If you were never exposed, if you didn't come from a family of tradespeople, you were never exposed where like my kids were in ag at um, Amber Pocasset Little School, but like my daughter learned to weld like those things. So we're still seeing some of that like through ag programs predominantly in rural Oklahoma, but in the cities, it's just gone. So I reached out to Sean McDaniel last summer, good friend of mine, and I just think he's done a fantastic job with Oklahoma City Schools. They had the bond issue coming up and I said, I've got an idea to pitch. Went over. He called in Paula Lewis, their uh, president of the school board. We ended up talking all afternoon and said, what about this? So in the bond issue, and it did pass, they will build a multi-purpose room at each high school in Oklahoma City schools to further ICAP, which is where you actually are doing career pathways with kids. Mm. And what we project is that over half of those will be shop. And we're working with the career techs and the apprenticeship programs across this uh, area to get the kids in their freshman year into shop, 
by their sophomore year, kind of see what the field of interest is. By their junior year, they're going to uh, apprenticeship classes or career tech half the time or at night. These kids can be fully licensed electricians, plumbers by the time they're 18, 19, no student debt starting at 60000 a year. Yeah. And it fills a beautiful need. And we're helping Oklahoma City kids that didn't have a career pathway. If it works, we'd like to replicate that across the state. So that's what we're trying to do is find creative ways to actually make a difference instead of just talking about it. That's really cool. I went to high school um, just, north, just north of Austin in Leander, Texas, and in the you know late 90s. Uh, and our class of 99. Um, the, <laughs> You're uh, such an infant. <laughs> <laughs> Bless you for saying that. Um, I So my school had what they called career passports, right? Which was like picking a major in high school. So mm-hmm. similar. We had a really great ag program, FFA program. Um, but this, and we had, I think there was some shop stuff related, you know, out by the ag barn. Um, but you regardless had to pick some kind of topic. And it was pretty easy. Most of us had two or three. You get a foreign language career passport by taking three years of the same language plus some kind of computer science class. I don't know why that was, but it helped round out your education. And for me, um, you know, I had one in foreign language and I had one in architecture and computer-aided graphics where I had, you know, same thing, started out doing like drafting and then moved to AutoCAD. Mm -hmm. And by our senior year, our teacher had partnered us up with other teachers or staff in the school who had an interest. Maybe it was building a shed in their backyard. My client was my geometry teacher who wanted to build a log cabin. So I had to do all this research to draw the blueprints for this. We had weekly consultations. And I mean, by the end, we had a legitimately good full set of blueprints that he could use to go build his cabin. And you also knew if after spending that much time, this is something you would really want to devote your life to and maybe not because you are a counselor. Well... (laughs) You know, life <laughs> life comes at you fast. Um, my path was not a straight line. There's an alternate universe where I'm an architect. And I mean, in fact, I, I'm, I'm in the process of building a podcast desk. Wasn't George Costanza one of those two? I don't. don't please don't compare me to Costanza. <laughs> These pretzels are making me thirsty. Um, no, but I still use those skills. I mean, I Scott and I are both kind of into woodworking as hobbies. And I, I've drawn, I drew out plans. I made an isometric drawing of a podcast desk with all the cuts and it's all in 3d that. so I could send it to him and say, so I'm thinking about here's the size and you know, had all the um, measurements on there. And it's like a useful skill that I use all the time. Mm-hmm. I drew, in fact, this whole office suite we're in when we moved in, we didn't have a floor plan. And so the landlord was like, yeah, I kind of sketched out on a napkin. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I'm going to become measure and I need, so I right. measured it and I drew it in 3d and sent it the floor plan with all the dimensions. And it's helpful to them. For other tenants, it's helpful to us. I bet that's not the norm with most of their tenants. It's probably not, but with good education <laughs> and workforce programs, it Absolutely. could be. Absolutely. Yeah. And don't we all need to be a little more diverse in different spokes of the wheel? Yeah. So I love that Texas was already doing that. But to be honest, Oklahoma's been behind the eight ball. Well, we have kind of failed on that. And I do feel like we're finally starting to get it. And we do have a fantastic career tech system. That's one of the best things we do in the state. And that's because they are not totally funded by state appropriation. 
they don't have to wait at the trough of mm. taxpayer dollars because they get a percentage of ad valorem. Because people always say, why do we have this one system that works so well and everything else is hurting? That's why. So let's let them keep that and keep right. doing what they're doing. But I think these kind of programs and really re-energizing that career pathways could make a huge difference for our kids. Interesting. And to be clear, that was 20 years ago. They may not have that system anymore right. in Texas. Who knows? Um, well, Commissioner Osborne, I, before we kind of wrap up, um, because of your time in the legislature and because we're in the middle of session, I know many of our listeners are you know, up to their eyeballs with bills and stuff now. Um, I want to talk with you a little bit, not so much about content necessarily of bills, unless you want to, but about process. Right. Um, so to kind of set the stage for this piece, yesterday on Thursday, um, Speaker McCall and the House Republican Caucus announced their education plan. Um, this is in contrast to the Senate plan that Senator Adam Pugh released back in January. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been about a month or so that since they released that plan. And the the House plan kind of came out of left field, right? So a lot of our um, friends and, and, and allies that work in kind of education, you know, circles, advocacy, you know, like they at night they go to bed, they check all the agendas, they look at the bills, they think, okay, we're at peace, I'm going to bed. Well, then Wednesday night around 11 o'clock, dun, 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 um, and a committee substitute was filed on uh, House Bill 2775. And this committee substitute, because it was filed that late, like was past the time that all the bill tracker software runs. So none of us got email alerts. Fortunately, Sean Ashley at Quorum Call and his daily early bird Twitter thread said, well, I got some breaking news. Like, this bill is going to come, and it's not vouchers, but it's like a tax credit, right? So instead of giving the money up front, you have, you get on the back end. Right. It's the same. But it's still the same pot of money, and people aren't aware. Right. But yes. And so that was coming out. Also, they were changing the bill from the Rules Committee to the House, the full Appropriations and Budget Committee. So a big shift. So new language, new committee. All of that's happening today at 430. And so we all, you know, we're making coffee and checking Twitter and we're like, oh my gosh, this is a huge deal. So a lot of text messages and flying around. And I started, I quickly drafted an email blast to all of our folks that get our emails. And listeners, if you don't get our emails, you should go to letsfixthis.org slash sign up and you can sign up. Um, but the the crux of my email, because I hadn't even had time to digest this 15 pages of complicated policy and financial legislation that was being proposed, they, the, the thing that rubbed me the wrong way, and this is what, what I want to get your perspective on, is that this is a terrible way to govern. <laughs> this is my hot take, right? Only the House allows shell bills, and this started out as a shell bill. But even that is, well, that's annoying to me. I mean, the Senate does the similar process of a last-minute committee substitute that has not been fully vetted by the members of that committee to say nothing about the community at large. And I don't always think that the general public should have a voice in every single piece of legislation. We would never get anything passed, right? Like you can't have that much public comment, but we should have more than none or at least an opportunity for those that are closest to it to have a chance to read it, to think about it, to consider its implications implications to consider its constitutionality, which too often is not well considered by the authors. True. And and this was a good example of a bill that came out so quickly that even between the time that they filed the amendment 
at 11 o'clock on Wednesday night. And at 11 o'clock the next day, when they had the press conference, they realized that the bill as it stood was unconstitutional because it combined policy and fiscal, and they had to divide Love it early. into two. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wait a second. They did, they filed it late, rushed it through, then got some initial blowback, and were like, oh, whoops, let's, let's split it up. So clearly it was not a fully well-developed right. thing. And what what is crazy to me is that this is not new. This isn't like an urgent – this isn't when COVID happened and the whole world scrambled to catch up. Education policy is top of mind year after year. It is talked about all year long, not just during session. Why was this such a half-baked, rushed proposal to come out? And honestly, I expect more from the speaker. Mm-hmm. He's been a, the longest-serving speaker maybe ever, at mm-hmm. least in a long – several generations, right? This is not a new rodeo for him or for Chairman Wallace or for you know uh, Leader Eccles or any of these guys. It just kind of struck me as odd. And I'm sure there's some politics behind the scenes that I don't have to deal with and I'm thankful for that. But on the surface, right, the way in which legislation originates and comes before the body seems like it could be better. What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And because it makes us all look bad. And and we talk all the time about open records, transparency, and all these kind of things. And then we do these things. And I had never heard of shucking a bill until I got into the legislature. And it's like, oh, well, your bill died in committee. Wait a couple of months, find a bill that didn't make it through committee that's in the same title, shuck it, throw your language in, pop it out where nobody sees it and put it in a different committee. That is not good government. <laughs> right. It's not good government. And it makes all of us look suspect. It makes the optics alone are just not well thought out. And I'm not blasting who did this particular bill, but it's the whole system. And until all of us get on the same page, regardless of party, regardless of what, and say, you know, we need to look better than this. First of all, we need to be better than this. Mm-hmm. But even the optics of this, it's never going to change. And I mean, and that's the unfortunate thing is then it gives people distrust in their elected officials, distrust in government, and they give up. Or maybe they even stop voting. And we talk about that, you know, these yeah. percentages of who shows up to vote. And I think it's because a lot of people feel like, what what does it even matter if I do? So what I would like to say, too, to that process is then somebody will see that press conference. I saw it on Channel 9 or something last night. And you think, oh, my gosh. Okay, we're going to have this, this. No. Right. <laughs> We've gotten one bill through committee on the House side. I don't. I doubt the Senate likes it. The Senate's had something come through on their side. And, yes, they had the Pew bill that was common ed stuff, but they also have the Julie Daniels and Shane Jett bill to do vouchers as well over right. there. And like you said, one's paying in the front end, the back end. It's really the same thing. I mean, it's still the same pot of money. We all realize this. And these are both going to go through so many processes before we ever get to a final project. But what it did show me was this. Last year, the House was the stalwart that stood up and said, we have basically over half of our rural counties that don't have a private school option. Mm -hmm. We're a poor state. We're usually 40th to 44, I mean, 45th to 50th in the nation on overall tax collections. So we don't have a lot of money to waste, and we need to prioritize things like common education. And every dollar you take out for something else is a dollar that's not going to go to those things. And I feel like we've just gotten off track. Of, and and I think that that makes people not trust and whatever of what's going to happen. And because the House had been the one standing, I think it was a big signal that they put that bill out yesterday. Whether anything close to that version comes through, mm-hmm. I would say this means that vouchers are getting through. 
And whether we want to call them ESAs or we want to call them vouchers or we want to call them whatever it is, my main problem with that is I remember when we would run bills on OLAP or Oklahoma's Promise. When I came into the legislature, you could only be poverty level or below to receive those funds for career tech or college. Then we upped it some because like thinking of a family of, you know, different sizes and if mom and dad were both working. So I think it was like maybe 50 or 60,000 a year. There's no income limitations. Right. So basically we will be subsidizing the wealthy to send their kids to private school that they're already doing. Right. Now, if it's really the intent to make sure that underprivileged inner city children are getting there, then let's run the bill that way. Let's have an income stipulation and a transportation component. But if you don't do that, then that was never the intent of the bill, and it's hypocrisy with a capital H. So let's be honest about what we're doing. Don't say this is to help the underprivileged. When you haven't put those things in there, you are not being disingenuous. Yes, I completely agree. And to add on to that, because there's the cap in there for the funding to, of a $2 million per district, not only do inner city underprivileged kids not get the money, they get less, right? So students in Oklahoma County will only receive, or districts will only get about $60 per person, mm-hmm. per student. Rural areas get a much higher percentage, right? Because but, it's a, it's a flat most, level. But most of them don't even have a private school option. Right. No, but it's clearly a way to pay <laughs> off the rural areas, right? We're going to give the rural well, schools lots of money, the urban schools not as much money, and everyone can be happy. But still, does it even work? And no. are we just going to encourage Betty's Bible School to pop up in Godibo? And, you know, we aren't going to check them because if it's a private school, we aren't. And maybe all they're going to teach is the Old Testament. Well, I kind of think kids need some reading, writing, and arithmetic to get a degree. <laughs> and I'm just saying, I mean... We have to remember that we have no stipulations on homeschool and private schools in our state. Right. Way and less do, than other and states. Do, are you aware that we are the only state in the nation that doesn't track homeschoolers? Yes, and, I just learned that today. <laughs> now, I have no problem with people homeschooling. That is choice, right? But if you say you have a kindergarten child and you live in Surreal, where the little girl yes. just died, yeah. no one was checking because you just say, oh, I'm homeschooling. No, no truancy offers. officers come by. Nobody checks to see if you really have curriculum. Nobody checks to see on any any testing. So I use this argument a lot and people don't like it. And this is not for the good homeschoolers. And there are many of them. We also have feral children across the state where people are just letting their children run wild and watch HBO all day. And at the end of the day, we're going to subsidize that now. Yeah. There was a story, I think this week, where the Oklahoma County Sheriff went into a home, found two children uh, and like eight dogs, they, they you know, Aaron Brillbeck used to be at News 9, yes. is now the spokesman. He was there when they did this welfare check, which I think became a raid. Um, just uh, overwhelming air of feces right. and urine. And these kids were just being neglected. No food in the house, nothing. Horrifying. And the, and the parents said, well, we homeschool. Right. So no one had ever checked. But in another state... Where they do do, and I'm not saying where they do total control. That's part of being a homeschooler. I have a good friend who was a college teacher, and she actually did the co-ops, and they they did the activities. They did all the great things, but that's not always the norm. But if you're falling through that crack in another state, they would have at least had somebody checking on you for things every so often. Are they really educating? Is there at least some amount of curriculum? Do you have broadband? Is there any form of the... Okay, we're doing none of that, so that's why we're going to continue to see, and this will exacerbate the problem because the meth mom in Woodward that has six kids... And school was their only safe place and their only warm meal of the day. 
She's going to take 36000 a year, and she's going to have feral children. Yeah. Now, don't say, hear me again. I'm not saying there's a lot of good homeschoolers out there. But with no protections, the bad guy's going to mess it up for the good guy. Right, right, right. Because the, the checking on people is not necessarily to identify bad things. Right. It's to offer... Assistance and exactly. services. Like, hey, how's everything going? Good? Anything what, what we can help with? Right, right. Did you know there may be free curriculum that we can get you through right. your Chromebook? Were you aware? Right. That's what we're talking yeah. about. But there also is a component of responsibility in society Yeah. to take care of the people that need taking care of. And I'm sorry that if that makes me a bad Republican, I think that's part <laughs> of our job. There's, um, it is funny that we couch things as, you know, good or bad Republican or Democrat instead of just like being a good neighbor and a good citizen, right? Oh, but that goes back to that Jesus and Republican Jesus. That's true. Um, (laughs) We we somehow tend to reframe things frequently, you know? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, You know, I care about this state. I care about my fellow Oklahomans a great deal. From people who live in big urban areas, live in high-rise apartments and, you know, McMansions and Nichols Hills and live in uh, one-bedroom, you know, barn dominiums in rural areas. Um, everyone deserves a fair shake, right? Absolutely. Kids especially but deserve the best. Wasn't that supposed to be the American dream? I, it's still mine. I think it is. But have you ever seen the show The Newsroom? Yes. Oh, Jeff man. Daniels. Yes. Do you know what I'm talking yes. about? The you know, first, I'm a big Aaron Sorkin fan. Oh, so yes. The first season. Yes. And they ask him on the panel. Yes. And I backed it up and listened like six times. I'm like, is he giving my speech? Right. Like, <laughs> he's saying everything I believe. Are we the best nation on the world? No. Right. We have been and we can be again, but no, we're not doing it right anymore. Yeah. And he nailed it. Yeah. Nailed yeah. it. That's, if um, you have not watched the newsroom, watch the newsroom. I may. What, splice three series? And... It's a fantastic. It is. But his little. Yes, that five minute, five minute clip ramp is, just mm-hmm. warmed my little black heart. Yes, I will. I will definitely link that in the show notes. I may even splice it in. I think you should as we go out, just because it's a. There's some you know colorful language, but it's an important oh, scene. But it's also so relevant today. Oh, that's good. Yeah, uh, Commissioner Labor Commissioner Leslie Osborne, thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. I always enjoy it. Come back anytime. We'd love to have you. Okay, uh, listeners, thanks for being here as well. Um, I'm not going to play the music so that I can splice in that clip of Jeff Daniels from the newsroom. Um, as a reminder, um, go to our website, letsfixthis.org slash calendar to look at our community calendar. Um, intern Micah and I have been putting a bunch of uh, capital days on there. There's one that's coming Monday for education, in fact. Um, it's President's Day, so if you don't have school or work and you want to go to the Capitol, it's a great day for it. Um, but there's something almost every week, every month for the next few months, we'd love for you to join us and our colleagues at the Capitol for a cause that matters to you. Um, we will be um, announcing soon, I think, some dates for CivicsCon coming this summer, a chance for you to learn, to grow, um, to connect with your fellow Oklahomans about matters in civics, about organizing, about building community. We're really excited about what we have planned for you. Um, if you are interested in being a part of that, um, please reach out to us at podcast at letsfixthis.org. I'd love to get you connected with our, our planning committee on that. Uh, and on that note, just remember that decisions are made by those who show up. Have a great week. Hi, my name is Jenny. I'm a sophomore, and this is for all three of you. Can you say in one sentence or less what... <laughs> um, you know what I mean. Can you say why America is the greatest country in the world? diversity and opportunity.
Lewis? Uh, freedom and freedom. So let's keep it that way. Well, the New York Jets. <laughs> no, I'm going to hold you to an answer on that. What makes America the greatest country in the world? Well, Lewis and Sharon said it. Diversity and opportunity and freedom and freedom. I'm not letting you go back to the airport without answering the question. Well, our Constitution is a masterpiece. James Madison was a genius. The Declaration of Independence is, for me, the single greatest piece of American writing. You don't look satisfied. One's a set of laws and the other's a declaration of war. I want a human moment from you. What about the people? Why is America Not the greatest, the greatest country in the world, Professor. That's my answer. You're saying... Yes. You're... Let's talk about... Fine. The... Sharon, the NEA is a loser. Yeah, it accounts for a penny out of our paycheck, but he gets to hit you with it anytime he wants. It doesn't cost money. It costs votes. It costs airtime and column inches. You know why people don't like liberals? Because they lose. If liberals are so fucking smart, how come they lose so goddamn always? Hey. And with a straight face, you're going to tell students that America is so star-spangled awesome that we're the only ones in the world who have freedom? Canada has freedom. Japan has freedom. The UK, France, Italy, Germany, Spain, Australia, Belgium has freedom. So 207 sovereign states in the world, like 180 of them have freedom. All right. And yeah, you, uh, sorority girl, just in case you accidentally wander into a voting booth one day, there's some things you should know. And one of them is there is absolutely no evidence to support the statement that we're the greatest country in the world. We're seventh in literacy, 27th in math, 22nd in science, 49th in life expectancy, 178th in infant mortality, third in median household income, number four in labor force, and number four in exports. We lead the world in only three categories. Number of incarcerated citizens per capita, number of adults who believe angels are real, and defense spending, where we spend more than the next 26 countries combined, 25 of whom are allies. Now, none of this is the fault of a 20-year-old college student, but you nonetheless are, without a doubt, a member of the worst period, generation period ever, period. So when you ask what makes us the greatest country in the world, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Yosemite? Sure used to be. We stood up for what was right. We fought for moral reasons. We passed laws, struck down laws for moral reasons. We waged wars on poverty, not poor people. We sacrificed. We cared about our neighbors. We put our money where our mouths were, and we never beat our chest. We built great big things, made ungodly technological advances, explored the universe, cured diseases, and we cultivated the world's greatest artists and the world's greatest economy. We reached for the stars, acted like men. We aspired to intelligence. We didn't belittle it. It didn't make us feel inferior. We didn't identify ourselves by who we voted for in the last election, and we didn't, we didn't scare so easy. 
We were able to be all these things and do all these things because we were informed by great men, men who were revered. First step in solving any problem is recognizing there is one. America is not the greatest country in the world anymore. You probably know...